Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, which happens to be my 35th wedding anniversary. So happy anniversary, Dan Rice. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Clark. I appreciate that. By the way, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. And yeah, we're going out. We're going to have some fun tonight. Looking forward to that. Well, today on the program, we're going to talk with Randy Newman. He is the author of Questioning Evangelism. And lest you think this is a book about whether or not uh, evangelism is valid and we should question it, that's not what it's about. It couldn't be further from the truth in terms of an interpretation. Uh, The subtitle, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did by Asking Questions. And we'll talk with Randy Newman about that and give him an opportunity to explain Uh, what he means by the phrase, and he has uh, quite an extensive background in evangelism, so that's coming up later this hour. We're going to wind our way through a number of uh, top news stories, the French election, North Korea detaining another American, and the Pentagon eyeing Iran and North Korea as uh, having some kind of military connection. We'll talk about the hearings that took place earlier today where we had the first opportunity to hear uh, from uh, the acting attorney general when the uh, Trump administration began uh, we'll get into all of that in today's program. Well, speaking of that hearing, President Trump's ousted National Security Advisor Michael Flynn took more hits at a Senate hearing today where uh, former top uh, justice official Sally Yates testified that she warned the Trump White House that Flynn w- could essentially be blackmailed by Moscow for having misled the vice president about his Russian contact. Well, at the same hearing, testimony from another Obama official also challenged persistent allegations from some of the Trump administration's fiercest critics about collusion with Russia during the 2016 campaign. Essentially, we didn't learn a whole lot much, a whole lot more than we already knew. James Clapper, who served as director of national intelligence during the Obama administration, stood by past assertions that he had no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Asked by Senator Lindsey Graham, out of South Carolina, a Republican, whether that assessment is still accurate, Clapper said it is. He admitted he also has not initially, uh, rather was not initially aware of the FBI's counterintelligence probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election, but he said if there was any evidence of collusion, it didn't reach the evidentiary bar needed for an intelligence assessment issued earlier this year. Clapper further reiterated that the team couldn't corroborate the contents of an infamous anti-Trump dossier that is shared uh, with officials earlier this year. Well, the focus of the um, Graham-led hearing was Yates' account of, on Flynn. She first, uh, this rather is her first public testimony on the episode. She served in the Obama Justice Department and briefly as acting attorney general for Trump until the president uh, fired her for refusing to defend his initial travel ban. Yates told the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism that she first notified White House counsel Don McGahn in late January about Flynn's contact with Russian ambassador uh, at a time when he apparently was uh, relying or rather relaying information to the uh, contrary to the vice president, uh, Mr. Pence. Well, since um, she said that they met, uh, met rather in a uh, secure facility, she informed McGann that Flynn contact uh, in a fair amount of detail. She said that contact was problematic in part because the Russians knew about those contacts and knew he had misled Pence about them. That created a compromise situation where the national security advisor could essentially be blackmailed by the Russians. She later testified, we knew that that was not a, a situation which 
uh, uh, not a good situation, which is why we uh, wanted to let the White House know about it. Yates account uh, raises more questions about how Flynn stayed on for more than uh, two weeks following that notification. The president, though, blasted out a pre-buttle ahead of Yates appearance, even suggesting the ex uh, Justice Department official leaked classified information, which was another stern question put to both who were there at the hearing. Ask Sally Yates under oath if she knows how classified information got into the newspapers soon after she explained it to White House counsel, Trump wrote. Uh, he was likely referring to the January 26th exchange in which Yates told, um, Yates rather told McGahn about Flynn's contact with Russia. That meeting quickly made its way into news accounts fed to reporters by anonymous sources. Trump also has underscored that Flynn got a security clearance under the Obama administration and did so again on Monday. Uh, General Flynn uh, was given the highest security clearance by the Obama administration. He was under that security clearance at the time that these Russian meetings took place. But the fake news he went on to write uh, seldom likes talking about that, Trump tweeted. Well, after his uh, tweets, multiple reports quoting unnamed Obama officials said the president himself warned Trump against hiring Flynn during their Oval Office meeting after the election. The White House acknowledged Monday that Obama relayed that he was uh, not a fan of Flynn's, which can be interpreted in a variety of ways. Susan Rice, Obama's national uh, security advisor, uh, declined an invitation to testify before the same panel today. Witnesses uh, said uh, also offered new details about the Unmasking of Trump associates before the current administration took office, a controversy with which Rice is connected. No relations, by the way. Amid reports of individual identities being disclosed from intelligence reports and circulated within the Obama administration and leaked to the press, Graham said he's learned disturbing information about that process. But Clapper said the process has been misunderstood and explained the identities of Americans and in intelligence reports can be revealed in certain circumstances. However, he said this should be provided only to the person who properly requested it, not to a broader audience. He said 1,934 identities were unmasked in this way in 2016 and stressed, at no time did I ever submit a request for personal or political uh, purposes or to voyeuristically look at raw intelligence, nor am I aware of any instance of such abuse by anyone else, end quote. Well, this led to probing questions during the hearing today. Senator Charles Grassley out of Iowa, he asked the witness if they, witnesses plural, if they uh, requested the identities of of Trump, his associates, uh, or members of Congress to be unmasked. Clapper answered that he had once, but couldn't discuss it. Yates said she had not. Clapper and Yates both answered affirmatively when asked if they ever reviewed classified documents where Trump, his associates, or congressional lawmakers were unmasked. More broadly, Clapper stood by intelligence community findings that the Russian government pursued a multifaceted influence campaign in the run-up to the election and sought to damage Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton and help Trump. He said the Russians are emboldened to pursue similar activities in the future and added, if there uh, has ever been a clarion call for vigilance and action against a threat to the very foundation of our democratic political system, this episode is it. And of course, we saw evidence uh, of similar efforts uh, in France with their elections over the weekend. Uh, French law forbids that information from being exploited by the media and reported. Uh, so it was tamped down there. We'll talk more about that uh, a bit later in the program. We do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Randy Newman will join us later, th- later this hour and his book once again, Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. 
Later this hour, we'll talk with Randy Newman, his book, Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. That's coming up later this hour. David French has this to say about the president's executive order on religious liberty. If reports are correct, it's constitutionally dubious, dangerously misleading, and ultimately harmful to the very cause that it purports to protect. In fact, he should tear it up, not start over, and do the actual real statutory and regulatory work that truly protects religious liberty. Bob Dreher writes this uh, in The American Conservative. It has nothing, zip, nada, uh, rather does nothing, to protect the religious liberty of people who dissent from LGBT rights dogmas. And regarding the contraception mandate, it directs Treasury, Labor, and HHS to consider. That's a quote issuing, uh, uh, issuing uh, amended regulations that are more respectful of religious liberty. Consider... Uh, there's your brave defender, Little Sisters of the Poor. Well, in a really bad sign, uh, even the ACLU isn't troubled by the move uh, announced by the president last week. Well, President Trump said he'd uh, promote common sense policies that would make America great again and would stand up to politically correct bullying from the left. So why isn't he doing that in the case of religious freedom? Ryan Anderson points out that twice now he has failed to stand up for common sense policies on religious liberty when liberal opponents lashed out against it. Back in February, he caved to the protests of liberal special interest groups as he declined to issue an executive order on religious liberty that had been leaked to hostile uh, to the hostile press. He issued an executive order on free speech and religious liberty that does not address the major threats to religious liberty in the United States uh, last week. The executive order is woefully inadequate, he writes. Trump campaigned promising Americans that he would protect their religious liberty rights and correct the violations that took place during the previous administration. His election was about correcting problems of the last administration, including religious liberty violations and the hostility to people of faith in the United States. This order does not do that. It is a mere shadow of the original drafted draft rather leaked in February. As I explain in my new book from Oxford University Press, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, religious liberty is a birthright of all Americans. And yet over recent years, Americans saw their religious liberty rights under assault as never before. The Trump administration still has time to take a meaningful action to reverse those trends so that all Americans may seek out and serve God and their neighbors according to their own convictions, not the government's. All Americans have benefited. Uh, from the protections that Trump could issue, Congress should also act to make these protections permanent so a future administration cannot easily undo them. All Americans should remain free to worship God, serve the poor, educate the next generation, and run a business all in accordance with their religious beliefs, whatever those beliefs happen to be. We should all be subject to the same legal standard. Government can only substantially burden the free exercise of religion if it is acting to advance a compelling government interest pursued in the least restrictive way possible. Media reports on Tuesday said that today's executive order, that was Friday, was going to provide meaningful protections. One influential conservative who saw the text said it um, hasn't been dialed back much, if at all, since the February leak. The language is very, very strong, the source said. But in reality, what Trump issued uh, last week is rather weak. All it includes is general language about the importance of religious liberty, saying the executive branch will honor and enforce existing law and instructing the Department of Justice to issue guidance on existing law. Directives to the Department of Treasury to be lenient in the enforcement of the Johnson Amendment and directives to the secretaries of Treasury, Labor and Health and Human Services to consider issuing amended regulations to address conscience based objections to the HHS contraception 
uh, mandate that the federal government should be honoring and enforcing our religious liberty laws anyway. Legislation is required to actually address the Johnson Amendment, which isn't the prime priority on religious liberty. And the Supreme Court has already unanimously instructed, rather, the federal government to resolve the case of the Little Sisters of the Poor and other HHS mandate cases. By contrast, the February draft, a version of which was originally planned for today, or for the National Day of Prayer, according to media reports, made good on many of the president's promises to protect religious liberty from government penalties. That draft protected religious liberty rights of all Americans in very tailored ways that addressed the problem that were not addressed in this later um, amendment or, or uh, president uh, executive order. And David French, writing for the National Review, points out that fresh on the heels of a budget deal that fully funds Planned Parenthood, Donald Trump has signed a religious liberty executive order that, if reports are correct, is constitutionally dubious, dangerously misleading, ultimately harmful to the very cause it purports to protect. In fact, he should tear it up. According to the New York Times and other uh, others, uh, the administration's um, uh, executive order is of little threat. Let's dispense first with a vague and sweeping promise to protect and vigorously promote religious liberty. That's a nice sentiment, but it's proven only by actions. And if the order itself is considered one of those actions, then it's self-refuting. The order doesn't do anything vigorously, and it doesn't protect anything at all. Next, and this is important to understand, an executive order cannot repeal a statute. The legal restriction on political activity by churches are statutory. They're part of the so-called Johnson Amendment, a rarely enforced provision of the tax Tax code that prohibits 501c3 tax-exempt organizations from, as the IRS explains, directly or indirectly participating in or intervening in any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for elective public office. The Johnson Amendment is constitutionally problematic, to put it mildly. Lyndon Johnson rammed it through Congress for the noble purpose of stopping nonprofits from supporting his primary opponent and preserving his own political hide, and it's uh, been on the books ever since. Though it's rarely enforced, it hangs like the sword of Damocles over the heads of not just churches, but every 501c3 in the United States. First Amendment lawyers are desperate to find a good test case to challenge it, but the IRS's general lack of enforcement means that the right case is elusive, so the amendment remains. The answer to the Johnson Amendment, however, is to either repeal the statute or over- overturn it in court. This order does neither. In fact, a lawyer will commit malpractice if he tells a pastor or director of a nonprofit that this order allows a church or a nonprofit to use its resources to support or oppose a candidate. Even if the Trump administration chooses not to enforce the law, a later administration can tear up Trump's order and begin vigorous enforcement based on actions undertaken during the Trump administration. So while it was a nice gesture, it was in terms of having an actual impact meaningless. We'll see what happens next. Well, one of Trump's uh, Achilles heels is the 129 judicial vacancies that remain unfilled. Lower courts stacked with Obama appointees delivered major setbacks to GOP priorities in uh, recent days. Well, the president watched as a federal judge in Hawaii, for example, put his revised travel ban on hold weeks before another judge in California curtailed his authority to punish sanctuary cities and counties. Both judges have something in common. They both got their jobs by way of appointment from the former president. The former president also appointed one of the appeals court judges in San Francisco who upheld the freeze on Trump's original travel ban. One of the other three judges on that panel was an appointee of the former president, Jimmy Carter. That's why he needs to 
start getting as many act, uh, actual judicial conservatives, people who will enforce the Constitution, as he can. Well, Trump's frustration in the, uh, the courts are a reminder that while the Supreme Court gets outsized attention, it's the hundreds of judges in the district and appellate courts who settle most of the country's legal disputes. And after eight years of the Obama administration, Democrat-appointed judges populate the courts at all levels. That's why it's important to fill those slots, Hans von Spakovsky points out. Um, that's why he needs to start getting as many actual judicial conservatives, people who will enforce the Constitution. Well, according to the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, there are uh, currently 129 vacancies in the federal court system. Another 17 judges have uh, indicated they will retire or take semi-retired senior status by the end of next March. It represents a huge opportunity for Trump to put his stamp on the courts that in many ways could exceed the impact of his appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, meanwhile, the Trump uh, the administration is naming some conservative picks to the uh, federal court, and we'll talk with a representative from a legal organization to talk about some of those uh, names that have been brought forward. I think there are about four or five uh, to build on the successful confirmation of the uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. This president says he has a list of actual uh, conservative nominees at the ready We'll see what uh, what happens with those. All right. Coming up, we're going to talk with the author of Questioning Evangelism, uh, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. Randy Newman is the senior fellow for evangelism and apologetics at the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C. He's also an adjunct professor at Talbert School of Theology, Reformed Theological Seminary and Patrick Henry College. He has served for more than 30 years with Campus Crusade for Christ in establishing Connection Points. That's a ministry to help Christians engage people's hearts the way Jesus did. So his book is really a reflection of all of that work, and we'll talk with him about that when he joins us in just a few moments. Again, the title of the book is Questioning Evangelism, and he urges us uh, to engage people in the same way that Jesus did by asking questions rather than either lecturing or presenting Uh, answers as a way of connecting with people with whom we want to share uh, the gospel. So that's coming up uh, later this hour. Uh, Also, we're going to talk about the French elections and why or if it matters to us here. We'll talk about North Korea and Iran and the connection that the Pentagon says they believe exists between the two. Uh, We're also going to talk about uh, what the Russians are doing in the Arctic, establishing a military base there where the United States is lagging woefully behind. We'll get into all of that um, in the next hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 33 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When it comes to evangelism, do you ever feel pressured to know all the answers? And what if you didn't have to worry about having all the answers, but instead knew the right questions to ask? In return, well, in questioning evangelism, engaging people's hearts the way Jesus did, author Randy Newman asks readers to look at evangelism in a different way. After all, Jesus asked questions, so why shouldn't we? Well, he's been uh, using a questioning style of evangelism for many years. And in this provocative book, he provides practical insight to help Christians engage others in meaningful spiritual conversations. Asking questions, he suggests, doesn't tell unbelievers what uh, what to think, but instead challenges how we think about people, their questions and our message. And he asserts that sometimes the best answer is a question. It's the way Jesus often talked with people as he led them into discussions about the issues that mattered most. 
most. Well, it's a perennial bestseller, Questioning Evangelism. Um, it's been updated in its second edition and includes a chapter in which um, he reflects on the success of the book and what the uh, uh, the book's popularity has uh, has taught him. Also, the book includes uh, the updated version, includes a new forward from Lee Strobel, author of The Case for Christ. The biggest change, however, involves revisions to a chapter addressing a major hot topic that we'll discuss in the course of our conversation. Well, my guest is uh, Randy Newman. He is the Senior Fellow for Evangelism and Apologetics at the C.S. Lewis Institute in the Washington, D.C. area. He's also an adjunct faculty at Talbot School of Theology, Reformed Theological Seminary, and Patrick Henry College. After serving for more than 30 years with Campus Crusade for Christ, he established Connection Points, a ministry to help Christians engage people's hearts the way Jesus did. And he's written four books and numerous articles about evangelism and other ways our lives intertwine with God's creation. He's a frequent conference speaker and specializes in helping people of different backgrounds dialogue about issues of faith. And he joins us today to talk about his latest book, Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did, the second edition. Randy Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. Well, it's important that we talk about the title of the book, because some of our listeners might be wondering uh, whether or not you're questioning uh, the need to share our faith, uh, which is what evangelism is. Um, The truth is, it's really about uh, something quite different. Talk about the title, Questioning Evangelism. Yeah, I know. It has misled a few people. Uh, Not too many, I'm glad to say, Mm -hmm. but uh, I'm not... I'm not questioning whether we should do evangelism, but I am doing two things. I'm questioning how we have done evangelism in the past, and then I'm trying to assert that um, using questions can be a very, very helpful uh, technique and very helpful tool in uh, conversing with people and moving them from perhaps unbelief to belief. Now, the first edition of Questioning Evangelism has uh, been a perennial bestseller. What's been updated in this uh, second edition that uh, readers of the first edition might find helpful? Oh, well, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. There, there's, not, there's not a whole lot of changes. Um, I did update some illustrations, um, and as you mentioned earlier, I, I needed to update the chapter about homosexuality quite a bit, just because our culture has shifted so dramatically. I mean, when I wrote that, I knew that things were moving in that direction because I had been ministering on the college campus for so many years, and that was always the hot topic there, or certainly growing. And um, so, but now that's just mainstream everywhere, and that for many people, that's the first objection to the gospel. If I believe what you believe, do I have to become homophobic like you too? Um, so I needed to update that chapter in light of the Supreme Court decision and uh, the dramatic cultural shift of really a majority of people now being in favor of gay marriage and things like that. So um, so I just needed to update that and be a little bit more um, pointed, I think, of here are some good things to say, here are some things not to say. And I also recommended some new resources, because in the last several years there have been some great things written by Christians to help Christians deal with this issue. Um, I think Sam Alberry's book is God Anti-Gay, and uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? They're all very new in the last several years, and they're tremendously helpful. So I wanted to get that out there for people to know that uh, this isn't just some crazy view that we have. It's, it's something strongly based in the Scriptures, 
And uh, and we have good news to tell people, even if it's not popular news. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you just gave one example, but there have always been, uh, there's always been opposition to proclaiming the gospel. Um, in what ways is it more challenging for Christians to share their faith in the world today than perhaps uh, uh, in previous generations? Yeah, and I think it is. I think it is more difficult. Um, um, but you're right, it, it has always been difficult, and Jesus warned us of, of that. I mean, they uh, they rejected him, and so they reject those who follow him and who are like him. So that's not different. But um, for a very long time, at least in America, there was a consensus of a some kind of vague Judeo-Christian value system that was accepted by the norm. Even if people didn't think through it, they... Um, that was kind of the baseline of their understanding of, of morality and um, the way people should behave. Um, but that has changed so dramatically that um, now it's more like um, when, when the prophet Isaiah said, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Um, we're the ones now who are harmful to society. Our intolerance is bad for people. Our repression of sexual desires is bad so so there's much more of a of a, a, a hostility whether it's blatantly stated or just held underneath the surface so that's a whole different thing than saying to people hey can i tell you the most wonderful news i've ever heard um, it is the most wonderful news that we've ever heard and it's the most wonderful news they can hear but we have to do some preliminary work before they'll even be willing to listen to us yeah you may have answered this question in part but what are the most common excuses that Christians use for not sharing their faith oh what are yeah um, I'm sorry I, I, I wasn't following sorry uh, what are the common well I um, you know I, I don't want to be too harsh about these things because I, I think I use all of them myself um, <laughs> I uh, and I don't even know if they're necessarily excuses. I think there are some real legitimate fears um, um, that um, people are going to be unkind, and you know nobody likes that kind of thing. So I, I think there's some of that that's legitimate. Um, there's also a fear that, oh no, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? So there's this almost this bottomless pit of I've got to, I've got to memorize a million answers to a million questions. And I do think we should, you know, be prepared to give an answer. Mm -hmm. That's what Peter wrote in First Peter 3. So we do want to do our homework and be prepared. But I, what I want to say to people is, listen, it's almost guaranteed they're going to ask you a question you don't know. That, that's almost guaranteed. So don't fear it and don't let that stop you from getting into it. And when, not if, when people ask you a question you don't know, be very, very quick to say, hmm, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, and, 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 you know, try to answer that question sometime. And, and I think what you're saying to the person then is, first of all, that you're humble, you're willing to admit that you don't know things, and then secondly, that you're, you're, you value the relationship enough that you'd be willing to go do some research or to think about it some more. So rather than the idea of, oh, I never want to get stumped, it's, I want to enter into conversations and be a good listener, a good conversation partner, but I also want to remember that God is superintending over this conversation in ways that he can take it in all sorts of different directions, and he can use whatever we say for his glory if those are his purposes. Now, 
you um, make the point in the book that it's uh, another approach to evangelism is is asking questions. And as you uh, pointed out, relationship listening is all very important. But why is it better to ask questions than to to give answers? Well, I'm going to resist the temptation to answer your question with a question <laughs> because this is your radio show, and I should I should not do that. But um, but but I'll ask it in a kind of a generic rhetorical way. What does a question do? See, now right now you're thinking how, what what the answer is. Mm-hmm. When 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 someone poses a question, it involves the other person in the answering process. If someone asks a question and you just deliver an answer. Or if you just tell people something, they can stand at arm's length, so to speak, figuratively speaking, and or, or just kind of resistant and just sort of watching you. But if you ask them a question, you engage them in the process, and, and the two of you move together rather than just one person. Um, so the, the biggest reason for doing this, I think, is because um, Jesus did it in so many, many of his conversations, and in fact, God does this in other parts of Scripture, through the prophets, through um, other uh, uh, voices. Um, there are so many places in the Scripture where God asks a question um, if through the mouth of the prophet. But think about when Jesus was posed uh, a question, how many times he didn't answer. He answered a question with a question. So they said, um, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, let me see a coin. Whose face is on the coin? Or they said, is it, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? He said, if you had an animal that fell into the ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? Or uh, is it lawful for us to get a divorce? What did Moses write? So, you see, by answering a question with a question, he engages the listener's mind and heart and moves them along in the process, instead of just being able to sort of watch you try to come up with an answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the, in the context of evangelism, what are some of the first questions that we should use to get the conversation started? Yeah, that's really good, because um, there's different categories of questions, and one category is starter questions, and then there's another category of response questions, how you answer a question with a question and things like that, and then there's clarifying questions. I mean, there's so many different categories, and I try to go into this Mm -hmm. in the book. But starter questions, I I think what we want to do is we want to develop a handful of starter questions that we feel comfortable asking that are not too terribly pointed. In other words, I would rather, if I'm getting to know someone, let me find out what do they like to do in their free time, what kind of books do they like to read, what's their favorite movie, uh, you know, get to know them. And then in the midst of that, well, how about spiritual stuff? Is that part of your life? How do, how do spiritual things uh, make a difference in your life? Do you ever think much about spiritual stuff? See, that's less pointed than um, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a good question, but that's further down the line yeah. after you've gotten to know the person a little bit. If that's the starting question, I think people are just going to run away. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Randy Newman. He is the author of Questioning Evangelism. I should probably say that different. Questioning Evangelism. Well, I'll work on that. Engaging people's hearts the way Jesus did. We'll be back. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Randy Newman. His book is Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. Now, how did you begin to use this method in your outreach and evangelism? You obviously have a long history of engaging people around uh, uh, themes of faith. How did you begin to change your approach? Well, um, yeah, I was on staff with uh, Campus Crusade for many, many years, and uh, so that was a lot of campus evangelism. And I, uh, I, my wife and I were always assigned to East Coast big city campuses that were more resistant to the gospel than other parts of the country. And so we tried all sorts of different methods and programs and techniques that work pretty well in the Midwest and the Bible Belt. Um, but they they didn't really do too well in in uh, big cities on the East Coast, and so it was kind of out of desperation and frustration that I felt that I needed to experiment because the the typical stuff just wasn't working, and people weren't responding. And the the other thing is, um, I come from a Jewish background, and I've taught a bunch of different Jewish evangelism seminars, and I've told groups of people that. Jewish people really enjoy dialogue, and then it's a two-way conversation, and it's much better with Jewish people to answer a question with a question and to make it back and forth rather than just one person doing the talking. And I started hearing more and more from a lot of people say, you know, that's true not just for Jewish people. Um, we, you ought to try this out with Gentiles. And so <laughs> I started experimenting. It was on the campus of Towson State in Baltimore, Maryland, and we just started seeing much better conversations. They just went a whole lot better and a whole lot longer, and we engaged people. And um, there, there's something uh, and for people who are very resistant to the gospel. If you just sit down and say, listen, I've got these four truths that you need to hear, you just sit there and be quiet. I'm going to proclaim these four truths to you, and at the end I'm going to say, what do you think? Well, that just doesn't go very well for people who write the very first, the very first statement. I mean, you talk about God. There's a whole lot of people go, wait, 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 hold the wait a second. Where you? you believe in God? Do you also believe in unicorns? And um, what God are you talking about? You know, you talk to ten different people, you talk about ten different gods. Which one are you talking about, and why should I believe you? And, and I know that that sounds a little argumentative, but um, that's what I think we need to prepare people for, because I think we're going to hear more of that kind of thing even if it's not quite as harsh as the tone I just, you know, mm-hmm. prayed. Mm-hmm. Now, in in question and raising questions as opposed to giving answers, uh, we've all been in a situation or at least witnessed a situation where that creates a level of frustration. Um, how do we do that without frustrating people as we engage them in things that matter? Well, it's, um, it is a little, uh, it's, it's kind of like an art uh, to develop. Mm-hmm. I think we need to know when to ask questions and when to make statements. It's, but, but that's like the art of a good conversation. I mean, there's times when you leave the spotlight on the other person and you ask them a question, and then there's times that you back off a little bit and then you, you know, add a little bit of your uh, view. I, I, I do think there's a whole lot of skill about conversation that we need to develop. And in fact, that's getting more and more difficult because we're all uh, challenged away from conversation by texting and social media where it's, you know, you just make a one-way statement. Uh, uh, Texting back and forth is not the same thing as face-to-face conversation. So we need to develop some skills, really good skills of listening, of observing people's facial expressions, 
Um, the thing is, I, I think it's developing some skills, but I don't think it's all that difficult. I don't want to scare people off from this. I think, I think we can become really, really good conversationalists. And by the way, if we're really good listeners, I think people will be drawn to us because it's so rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, this book is designed to be very uh, practical, um, and so it's outlined in a way that individuals or groups can uh, learn to evangelize. Describe a little bit how uh, you intend your reader to engage the book as they are preparing to engage others. Oh, thanks. Well, uh, the book's kind of broken up into three parts. Uh, the first part is just sort of an introduction to this style of dialogical, conversational evangelism and trying to explain the principles of it. Then, in the middle part, I apply those principles to common questions that people are going to ask. Questions like, why does a good God allow evil and suffering? Why do you believe the Bible? It's such an old book. Why why do you think that Jesus is the only way? There's sort of six or seven standard questions that people ask. And what I try to do there is I try to help people, first of all, think about what is the answer to that question, but then secondly, how would you deliver that answer in a conversational style? And then at the very end, the third part is some important skills about having compassion for people, knowing how to handle their anger or your anger, and how to develop listening skills. So I think what I want people to do is to anticipate, okay, what are the questions that people might ask me? And what are, what are some things that I want to make sure I say, but how can I say it in, a, in an engaging, conversational way? In other words, there's got to be a difference. There is a difference. We need to understand the difference between a conversation and a sermon. Sermons are great. Lectures are very, very important. I'm not opposed to them. But when you're sitting across the table eating lunch with someone or having a cup of coffee, it shouldn't be a lecture, and it shouldn't be a sermon. It should be a dialogue, a two-way conversation. One of the things that you feature in the book is the fact that uh, uh, discussions about Christianity don't always start out as a conversation about Christianity. Uh, it doesn't necessarily start directly tied to faith. What are some of the topics that you um, uh, explore in questioning evangelism? Yeah, and I think that that's a very important part of it. It's not, not so much of always starting a gospel conversation at the beginning of a conversation, but steering conversations to the gospel. So what we want to find out from people, what, what do they value? What, what do they think are the sources of truth or the sources of right and wrong? What are, what are the most important things in life? What does it mean to thrive as a human being? Uh, where do they see signs of God's hand, even if they wouldn't necessarily attribute it to God's hand? Um, what do they see in nature, in relationships, in friendship, in literature, in drama, in a million different places that all point to some kind of loving, gracious, sovereign God who is our creator and our redeemer? And I think the more we learn to look for those things in other places, then we can start making connections between a movie they saw that points to some kind of good versus evil. Um, that's what C.F. Lewis did, you know, when he did, when he did his radio broadcast that became Mere Christianity, he said, uh, there's, there's right and wrong in the universe, and those are clues to meaning in the universe. So he started where people were, where people say, hey, you shouldn't do that, or why did you do that? And we say, now what does that tell us about people? What does that tell us about life? What does that tell us about 
maybe there's something more. And so it's that kind of thing of steering conversations from whatever people are talking about to um, the God of the Scriptures and the God of the all of creation. What encouragement can you offer to listeners who really question whether or not they have the skill and the knowledge to carry out uh, a, an evangelistic conversation that maybe uh, begins with, uh, you know, rearing children and, and preferences there, but leads ultimately to sharing their faith. They're still a little timid about being um, skilled enough to do that. Yeah. Well, um, on, uh, what I want to say is we don't enter these conversations alone. Uh, mm. Evangelism occurs where there's this intersection of what we do and what God is doing. And so we do the human part. We ask questions, we listen, we use reason, we point people to the scriptures, we show them uh, other things they could read or look at that help them. So it's a very human endeavor. And yet, at the same time, we're praying and we're asking God to do what only He can do. And He opens up blind eyes, and He opens up uh, hardened hearts, and and there's nothing that's too difficult for him. So there's all, there's all sorts of other drama going on, and we're asking God to join us in this process. And it's not all up to us. In fact, it's not really up to us a whole lot at all. Yeah. And he can, he can superintend, and he can um, override. He, he can even use our stupid stuff, uh, <laughs> which is a great relief. Well, we see lots of examples of that in Scripture, so we should take heart. Was there ever a point when you felt... Um, uh, afraid or utterly lacked confidence in sharing the gospel? <laughs> oh, this is going to be a disappointment. I always feel afraid. <laughs> I, I, I do. No, I mean, I, I, I am an evangelistic chicken. I am always reluctant. I, uh, I kept waiting. At some point, I, I kept thinking, sooner or later, this is going to get easy. Sooner or later, I'm going to feel strong and confident about it. And it never happened. And then I thought, well, maybe it never will. And maybe that's okay. Maybe God can use me with all of my fears and all of my struggles and my lack of confidence. And then I read that verse in 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul said to the Corinthians, I was with you with much fear and trembling. And I thought, oh, good, I'm not alone. Well, if he could, if he could do it with fear and trembling, so could I. Uh, so, so I, I hope that's not terribly disappointing. I'm not one of those bold, brave evangelists. I'm always reluctant in saying, okay, Lord, I... There's really a lot of other things I'd rather be doing, but you've put this person here, and it's really obvious that they want to have a conversation. Could you use me anyway? Well, I think it's it's terribly reassuring to know that that's not uncommon, but that we can do it and that God shows up in the midst of it and gives us what we need. Right, exactly. Well, Randy Newman, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at questioning evangelism, engaging people's hearts the way Jesus did. And, you know, he, uh, he had a pretty good track record. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great to be with you. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. And by the way, today is my 35th wedding anniversary. So I'm pretty excited about that. Well, taking a look at uh, some of the headlines from the last several days, Democrats spent much of the weekend criticizing the American media for reporting on uh, leaked information from Hillary Clinton's campaign during the end of the 2016 election, contrasting that practice to a French media blackout on what was in the leaked Macron documents. Uh, Clinton herself shamed the media while congratulating 
the winner of the election in France on his victory. Now, those emails and campaign documents may have played a bigger role in Sunday's uh, vote, if not for the country's law that requires a blackout on any news that could impact the election for 44 hours. Now, the blackout started at midnight on Saturday, ended when polls closed on Sunday, and the French government warned uh, reporting or spreading the documents in the uh, uh, leaked documents from uh, Macron, the, the winner of that election, could be a criminal offense. Now, some are suggesting we need something similar here in the U.S. Not sure it would fly here, but uh, the Wall Street Journal of the uh, French election said uh, President Macron uh, will have a fragile mandate and a narrow window to press his agenda. France needs radical reform of a government that in 2015 took 57 percent of national GDP and an economy that uh, has a jobless rate that is 10 percent eight years after the financial crisis. Well, uh, the election in France took place on Sunday, and Emmanuel Macron, I'm trying desperately to sound like I know French, but I certainly, how am I doing, Clark? I know that you, you do actually speak it. He's a 39-year-old former investment banker running for office for the first time in his life, won election uh, on Sunday in a landslide, uh, will soon become the next president of France. It will be uh, pretty much of a stretch, however, to say that it was his globalist ideas that carried the day. He took 66% of the vote, defeating um, Ma- uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, who took about 34%. Uh, the winner in that election is a former economic minister for the current socialist president, Francois Hollande. Um, does not identify with a party, but has uh, formed a movement called, uh, loosely translated, Let's Go. Well, Le Pen belongs to the far-right National Front, which wants to end immigration, close France's national borders, improve relations with Russia, uh, the strongman President Vladimir Putin. Le Pen's party has received loans from Russia. Late Friday, a Russian outfit hacked Macron's um, uh, group emails and made them public. And, of course, we went over that already. Well, last week, he had received the official endorsement of former U.S. President Barack Obama, who raised eyebrows by issuing a supportive video. I may find it hard to, at first to work with President Donald Trump. France, however, is a NATO ally, the world's fifth largest economy and a nuclear power with a permanent seat in the U.N. Security Council. It's highly unlikely that Paris and Washington will not be able to work together in many of the world's toughest security hotspots, uh, such as Africa, where France is heavily involved. Well, under the Fifth Republic system put in place by General Charles de Gaulle back in 1958, the French presidency is very powerful, and the new president will have a have to cobble together some sort of working left-right coalition with the uh, legislature rather after parliamentary elections take place June 11th and 18th. Uh, president Macron, or c- certainly soon to be president, will also have to deal with the uh, impression that uh, he didn't win, Le Pen lost, as leftist candidates uh, are, are putting it and said on Sunday. For starters, uh, turnout was 75 percent. That was the lowest in a French presidential election in over half a century. Over four million of those who voted cast a blank ballot. Um, in this hyper-political nation, clearly there's no passion for either of the candidates um, uh, in the Sunday runoff. There's also the fact that Le Pen managed to win 35% of the vote despite being weighed down by her party's ugly past as well as her own. Her share of the vote was uh, double what her father uh, won in 2002 when he ran against former President uh, Jacques Chirac. And, of course, they've sort of had a falling out since uh, she took the, the political reins of that movement. She won over a, a third of the vote, even though the word 
uh, toxic was associated with her in the media for the last month. She launched an attack on German Chancellor Angela Merkel, telling the BBC that it was her who was toxic. Well, it went back and forth. There's now a winner. And the question is, does it matter to us here? Well, French voters uh, rejected the far-right presidential candidate, Marine Le Pen, to elect the centrist. It's a choice that resonates far beyond the nation's borders, from uh, the strongholds in Syria to London to Hong Kong, on the trading floors there to the halls of the United Nations Security Council. Uh, The outcome could have a bigger um, impact than Brexit did, or at least it had that potential in deciding the future of Europe. And some of the reasons for that, um, there was a a risk rather of Frexit, as some um, uh, referred to it. That risk has been averted. Uh, Macron's victory effectively ends all the near-term threat to uh, uh, to France pulling out of the European Union, just as the United Kingdom uh, did with Brexit. Le Pen had made uh, leaving the European Union a priority. The loss of a founding member of the alliance and one of the biggest countries would have all but doomed the European Union to collapse. Uh, that end uh, in the post-World War II dreams of a politically and economically united continent. Also, the currency chaos. Uh, uh, markets uh, will be relieved that Mar- uh, Macron won, though untested and France's youngest ever president will be the country's 25th leader. Le Pen wanted to scrap the euro, return to using the French franc, uh, a change that would have uh, roiled currency and other financial markets around the globe. A Frexit, as they called it, may also have heralded controls on money transfers, capital fight uh, and a plague of, uh, of defaults and lawsuits on bonds and contracts. And then there are migrant movements, which was much of what was debated in uh, this election in France. Macron, he wants to strengthen France's external borders and work with the EU partners to more effectively police immigration. And his victory puts uh, a halt to controversial proposals by Le Pen, who wanted to limit immigration, ban Muslims from entering France. That could have uh, had ripple effects elsewhere in Europe among anti-immigrant uh, governments. Uh, if she uh, became president, her victory could have emboldened other European countries to follow suit and jeopardize, uh, jeopardize rather the fragile EU migrants deal with Turkey. And then there's Assad's Syria and Putin's Russia. Nuclear-armed France has a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, as I mentioned. Macron will likely keep up France's, uh, France's operations against extremists in Iraq and Syria and Africa. Um, He'll also likely keep pressure on Russia over Ukraine and um, its actions to bolster Syrian President Bashar Assad. Le Pen, on the other hand, firmly backed Assad, distanced herself from President Trump over recent U.S. airstrikes uh, targeting the Assad regime. And Le Pen also met recently with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow, would have pushed for lifting sanctions against Russia over the conflict in Ukraine. So two very different candidates with uh, different views of what the priorities should be in that country that has the potential to impact other parts of the world. And finally, Macron's uh, presidency does not signal the end of political populism in Europe, although it does blunt uh, that movement. A win by Le Pen would have been a resounding victory for the populist wave that's reflected by the uh, uh, the Brexit vote and also for the election of Donald Trump. It also would have given uh, impetus to other uh, right-wing anti-establishment parties vying for upcoming elections, such as in Germany later this year. And even with Le Pen's de- defeat, however, she's uh, proven that populism is a powerful force. And uh, some are predicting, in fact, there were some conservatives who predicted she will be the president of France if the uh, the duly elected next president does not, in uh, short order, accomplish some of the things that he made his priority. So it will be interesting to see what happens in that country. Some of the things to look for have to do with 
those few things I mentioned just a moment ago. Well, North Korea announced Sunday that it detained a fourth American citizen over unspecified hostile acts against the country and amid worsening tensions with the U.S. Well, North Korea's official Korean Central News Agency said that Kim Hak Song, who had worked uh, for the Pyongyang University of Science and Technology before he was held on Saturday, North Korea said Wednesday uh, in an announcement that the detention of an accounting instructor at the same university, Kim Sang-duk, for acts of hostility aimed at overthrowing the country. Kim was detained in April at the airport in Pyongyang. I'm not sure I would want to work there under these present circumstances, and it seems that this may be a way of um, at least trying to gain some attention and uh, flex the muscles of the leadership there uh, because there's not much that can be done about uh, U.S. citizens being detained there. Well, the KCNA report didn't say whether the uh, the, the two cases are connected. Kim Hawk Song is among the latest uh, at least four Americans, rather, being detained in North Korea. The other are Otto Warembeer, uh serving 15 years in prison for with hard labor for allegedly uh, engaging in anti-state acts. Kim Dong-chul, serving a 10-year term with hard labor for alleged espionage. Now, Reuters reported that a message from Kim Hak-sung dated February of 2015 on the website uh, of a Korean-Brazilian church in Sao Paulo said he was a Christian missionary planning to start an experimental farm um, trying to help North Korean people learn to become self-sufficient. Keep them in prayer. When we return, we're going to talk more about uh, North Korea's military might and the connection between Iran and North Korea that the Pentagon is eyeing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, when Iran attempted to launch a cruise missile from a midget submarine earlier this week, Pentagon officials saw more evidence of North Korean influence in the Islamic Republic, with intelligence reports saying the submarine was based on a Pyongyang design, the same type that sank a South Korean warship in 2010. Well, according to U.S. defense officials, Iran was attempting to launch a JASC-2 cruise missile underwater For the first time. But the launch failed. Nonproliferation experts have long suspected that North Korea and Iran are sharing expertise when it comes to their rogue missile programs. Well, the very first missiles we saw in Iran were simply copies of North Korean missiles. According to Jeffrey Lewis, a missile proliferation expert at Middlebury Institute for International Studies in Monterey. Over the years, we've seen photographs of North Korean and Iranian officials in each other's countries, and we've seen all kinds of common hardware. When Iran tested a ballistic missile in late January, the Pentagon said it was based on a North Korean design. Last summer, Iran conducted another missile launch similar to North Korean um, Musudan, uh, the most advanced missile Pyongyang has successfully tested to date. Now, defense analysts say that North Korea's uh, Taipongdong missile uh, looks almost identical to Iran's Shahab missile. In the past, we would see things in North Korea and they would show up in Iran. In some recent years, we've seen some small things appear in Iran first and then show up in North Korea. And so that raises the question of whether trade, which started off in as North Korea to Iran, has started to reverse uh, Iran to North Korea. Well, Iran's attempted missile, uh, the cruise missile launch from the midget submarine in the Straits of Hormuz was believed to be one of the first times Iran has attempted such a feat. In 2015, North Korea successfully launched a missile from a submarine for the first time, and officials believe Tehran is not far behind. Only two countries in the world deploy 
this particular uh, Yono-class submarine, North Korea and Iran, uh, midget subs operate in shallow waters where they can hide. The North Korean's midget sub that sank a a uh, 290-foot South Korean warship in 2010, killing over 40 sailors, was ambushed in shallow water. Now, North Korea denied any involvement in that sinking, but the uh, uh, their involvement was clear. When those midget subs are operating underwater, they're running on battery power, uh, making themselves very quiet, hard to detect, says one U.S. defense official who declined uh, to be identified. And during testimony last week, Admiral Harry Harris, the head of the American Focus in the, in the Pacific, warned that the United States states has no land-based short or medium range missile because it's uh, a signatory to the immediate uh, intermediate range nuclear forces and or INF treaty signed in 1987 between Russia and the United States but Iran and North Korea are under no such constraints we are being taken to the uh, to the cleaners by countries that are not signatories to the INF uh, Harris told the House Armed Services Committee late last month. Well, perhaps most worrisome for the United States is that Iran attempted this latest missile launch from the midget sub Tuesday in the narrow and crowded Straits of Hormuz, or it's, it's actually singular Strait of Hormuz, where much of the world's oil passes every day. Over a year ago, Iran fired off a number of unguided rockets near the USS Harry Truman aircraft carrier as she passed through the Strait of Hormuz in late December of 2015. The U.S. Navy called the incident highly provocative at the time and said the American aircraft carrier was only 1,500 yards away from Iranian rockets. In July of last year, two days before the anniversary of the nuclear agreement between Iran and world powers, the Islamic Republic attempted to launch a new type of ballistic missile using North Korean technology, according to multiple intelligence sources. It was the first time Iran attempted to launch a version of North Korea's BM-25 Musadan Uh, ballistic missile, which has a maximum range of about 2,500 miles, potentially putting U.S. forces in the Middle East and Israel within reach if the problem uh, the problems are fixed. Well, the extent of North Korea's involvement in the failed launch was never clear, apart from North Korea's sharing their technology. In Washington on Thursday, the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson tried to garner support for more United Nations sanctions against North Korea by hosting leaders from Southeast Asia days after uh, Iran's first ballistic missile test of the Trump administration, the White House, put Iran on notice. And this is the um, the new partnership that we're being told uh, the United States is concerned about. Meanwhile, the next battle for supremacy between the United States and Russia is shaping up to be a lot chillier than the last Cold War with the Soviet Union, the Soviet power, the superpower. In the Arctic Circle, the Russians are touting a new military base, a development that underscores how woefully behind the U.S. is in the ice race, in the words of former Coast Guard uh, Commandant Admiral Robert Papp. Um, We've got our minds on a lot of other things around the world, and we're not focused on the Arctic, he said. He served as the State Department's special representative to the Arctic. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, is very connected and part of their it's part of their culture. They appreciate the riches, the oil gas reserves. Uh, They have um, uh, that very long coastline and they're looking to exploit it for their own prosperity. Well, the Arctic is less likely to be a site of real war, Pap said, as it is the focus of a resource grab by Russia and China. The new Arctic base uh, was unveiled recently by the Russian Defense Ministry, complete with an interactive tour on the ministry's website and photos of armed Russian troops riding reindeer. Uh, There's a lot of propaganda involved, Pap said, referring to President Vladimir Putin's visit in March to the Arctic trefoil built on uh, 
uh, Franz Joseph Island an archipelago that belongs to Russia. Rather than be critical and look at Russia and portray it as the as a Cold War, we ought to wake up and realize that we need to be prepared in the Arctic as well. Well, there are billions, maybe trillions of dollars of oil and gasoline reserves under the Arctic. Uh, deposits larger than those in Saudi Arabia, Russia and China are looking at ways to control uh, future sea lanes uh, being opened up due to global warming, according to PAP. Although I have a story earlier today that they're now predicting a, um, an ice age, but we'll get into that another day. Russia is clearly flexing its strategic ca- uh, capability in the Arctic, says uh, Sean Sullivan, a senator out of Alaska. The sea routes are opening, and President Putin has said uh, himself the Arctic is going to be the new Suez Canal. The Republican senator and uh, Maine reservist has been trying for years to urge the U.S. to position itself in the Arctic. He applauds the Pentagon's uh, decision to uh, reverse uh, cuts made to, by the Obama administration to disband the Alaska's 4th Brigade uh, Combat Team of the 25th Infantry Division, whose specialized skills can be utilized in Arctic conditions. So now uh, looking at spreading out uh, perhaps in that area of the globe as well. Uh, thought of any reasons to pray uh, yet, if you're wondering how to spend your time before the Almighty. And President Trump plans to travel to Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Vatican later this month as part of his first official trip overseas. Uh, The president will set out starting uh, May the 19th for the visits ahead of a NATO summit in Brussels and G7 summit in Sicily. He's going to travel to Riyadh and Jerusalem. He plans to meet with Pope Francis at the Vatican. Officials said part of Trump's goal is to address the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and rally support for the fight against Islamic radicalization. Announcing his trip during a National Day of Prayer event in the Rose Garden, the president highlighted the meetings he plans Uh, In Saudi Arabia, the custodian of the two holiest sites in Islam, we will begin to construct a new foundation of cooperation and support with our Muslim allies to combat terrorism. Trump said the announcement follows his uh, meeting on Wednesday with the Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas. And he also met with Catholic uh, cardinals earlier Thursday ahead of his trip to the Vatican. The White House has said uh, previously that Trump would travel to Belgium and Italy for the G7 summit before Memorial Day. And that uh, that whole round of trips begins uh, tomorrow. Well, the recent debate in Washington shows that Americans are taking a more liberal view of health care and there's probably not going back. A conservative commentator, Charles Krauthammer, said, speaking on Fox News to um, Tucker Carlson on Thursday night. And uh, he said this, and I quote, I think what conservatives and Republicans are beginning to understand is how the fundamental view of health care among American people has changed. Obamacare is a disaster on the ground. What's uh, what it's done to our system, what it's done economically, uh, it's in a death spiral and politically it ruined the Democrats, he says. However, there is an irony and a hidden victory over these last several years. People's expectations have changed based on Obamacare. You watch the debate over the last three months, Tucker. Again, he's being interviewed there. What are the grounds? The grounds are all liberal grounds. How many people are going to lose their coverage? How can you leave people out in the cold? The Jimmy Kimmel thing. It's showing that the country is at a point where I think it believes in universal coverage. And once you are there, the grounds have shifted and Republicans and conservatives are going to have a hard time arguing for a consumer-based, market-oriented health care system. We are in a different world. This is sort of the story beneath the story. Is the country headed for a single payer system? 
uh, Carlson asked Krauthammer. I think that's where we're going. He went on to say whether it will end up a single payer, you know, like on the Canadian system or not, I'm not sure. But I will guarantee you this. Within a few years, there won't even be an argument about whether or not government has an obligation to ensure that everybody gets health coverage. Now, that's what the Democrats wanted all along. Um, they weren't quite ready to pull the trigger in 2010 because there was not the public support for it. Uh, so they ended up with this hybrid system that's a uh, rickety system, which is um, not self-sustaining. But the idea, I think, has now sunk in. Earlier in a conversation uh, on uh, Fox News with Brett Baer, Krauthammer predicted that the United States will have a single-payer health system in less than seven years. And it was suggested, in fact, there are recordings of uh, then-Senator Obama talking about a single-payer system, which was his goal all along. And the route to get there would be rather circuitous. And I think we've just witnessed at least the early uh, steps in that uh, that route getting us to single payer, which in my view would not be the best uh, the best approach. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, talk about another cultural shift, beginning with the 2017 MTV Awards, in which they emphasize the fluidity of gender. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, if you follow the culture at all, you'll be interested. Uh, for those of you who didn't watch the 2017 MTV Movie and TV Awards, I'm certain you all did. But for those few who didn't, uh, the award show really pushed the idea of gender fluidity as if the issue was resolved. It's pretty much what we've all agreed upon. And it gives you a glimpse into what at least your sons and daughters, your grandchildren, um, the environment in which they are Uh, growing up. Well, the 2017 MTV Movie and TV Award televised on uh, Sunday. It was hosted by comedian Adam Devine and spotlighted some changes from past years. This year was all about embracing gender-neutral acting and genre-neutral media. They included men and women in the same category, television shows and movies in the same category. And apparently nothing matters enough anymore to honor distinctively female or male performances. So lumping everything and everyone together is now considered cool. Now, according to MTV, VH1 and Logo General Manager Amy Doyle, great acting is great acting, no matter what the gender or non-gender, Doyle says. Again, she argues the impetus for the change was the TV, uh, the MTV audience uniformly rejecting obsolete labels of embracing and embracing uh, fluidity. So um, uh, they're universally rejecting obsolete labels, read male, female, and embracing fluidity, which means there's neither male nor female. There's some sort of a continuum. She went on to say in dragging the last presidential election into the mix, uh, she stated, it really was a cultural statement. She adds of... uh, of eliminating the male and female acting categories. And it really is reflective about the audience's view. And when you look at the culture as a whole, you had a man against a woman running for president last year. It just felt like a dated construct for a category. So males and females no longer matter. I mean, this is uh, of lesser importance than other areas, one might argue. But nonetheless, it gives you the notion what lays behind this decision. Well, naturally, the first award presenter was Asia Kate Dillon, the first gender-neutral or non-binary character on television. The Best Kiss Award was given, naturally, to the only gay-kissing couple nominated, Ashton Sanders and Gerald Jerome. They won for their kiss in Moonlight. In his thank-you remarks, Sanders said, this is an award bigger than Gerald and I, which is why I'm bringing it up, because it is bigger than the actual kiss in an 
actual movie. MTV president Chris McCarthy explained another change in the show. Instead of the best fight category, it has now become the best fight against the system award. We have have to constantly be pushing ourselves to not only respond to culture, but to lead it. McCarthy said uh, he was speaking on CNN Money. Well, entertainment media has long led in many ways, and we unwittingly follow behind without really realizing where they are leading. Presenting this award was Liberal California Congresswoman Maxine Waters and liberal activist uh, Tracy Ellis Ross from Blackish. Uh, actress Taraji uh, Hansen accepted the uh, for the cast of Hidden Figures, which was a great movie, by the way. And while Ellis Ross uh, made a point of saying she was going off script to thank Representative Waters for being an extraordinary example in this time. If you have ever read a, a series of statements made by Maxine Waters, uh, the, the um, assessment made by uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is nonsensical. I won't go into it now, but hmm, if she is an extraordinary example of this time, and perhaps that's a right moniker, but it tells you more about the time than it does the quality of the uh, of the, the representative. And while MTV was hoping uh, to score cool points with millenniums by ushering in this new binary gender generation of actors in the movies and television, it really didn't make much of a splash to many of the millennials who were looking on. We'll see what... A kind of a splash it makes in the culture moving forward. Meanwhile, right here at home, the Oregon um, DMV is considering non-binary, uh, binary, there's no D in there, non-binary, uh, to become a third gender option on the Oregon driver's license application here in the state of Oregon. No longer male and female, as we were designated by God himself, who carefully knit us together, but now we are rejecting that idea and including non-binary so that you're neither male nor female. There are some exceptional people in which their DNA and biology does reflect that, but we're not talking about a matter of science. We're talking about a matter of preference. Well, according to uh, KVAL in Eugene, the Department of Motor Vehicles is considering adding another gender option to the Oregon driver's license application. Non-binary gender could be the third option for those who don't identify as male or female. So it doesn't matter what you are. It matters how you identify. The option would appear as an X in the application. Well, the DMV heard uh, numerous testimonies at a forum on Tuesday of last week in Eugene. Many in the audience supported the idea. My guess is because most people probably didn't even know the issue was being discussed. But the biggest concern presented was that a non-binary option could make it difficult for police to correctly identify someone. Uh, was the male, you know, as they're trying to get a profile of the suspect, male or female, non-binary? I'm not sure how you uh, would use that in law enforcement. Well, the next public hearing is going to be held here in Portland on the 10th. The last day to submit public comment is on the 12th. The change could be made as early as June. So if you're interested, concerned, now's the time to speak up. Again, the next uh, hearing in Portland is on the 10th. The last day to submit any uh, Public comment is on the 12th, so this week is the week to weigh in if you care about male and female and whether or not non-binary should be a, a, a gender added to uh, by the DMV. Well, Oregon's Democratic lawmakers came up with the most detailed plan yet on Thursday for fixing the state's wobbly budget by tapping business coffers. Some are calling it a sales tax, and we'll talk more about that on another occasion. But House Speaker T- uh, Tina Kotek would place a 95 cent, um, uh, 0.95% tax on annual business sales in excess of $5 million. About 5,000 businesses would pay this new tax. The tax to start in 2018 would produce about $2 billion in new state revenue in the 2017-2019 budget cycle. And the revenue would increase over time as uh, to as much as $3.6 billion in subsequent biennium. Now, is this a, a, 
sales tax that will be passed on to consumers? Yeah, it will. Well, the revenue is needed, they say, to shore up schools and stabilize the state budget, which, fed by personal and corporate income tax, is highly susceptible to shifts in the state's economy. To think that fiscal discipline and cost containment and just tightening our belt is going to solve this problem is not supported by the numbers, Kotek said, speaking to the 14-member Joint Committee on Tax Reform. Kotek and other top Democrats described a three-decades-old chronic structural revenue problem that leaves the state a budget short of funds. Did I say PERS somewhere in here? Anyway, they argue that now, when the economy is in good shape, it's time to fix the problem. Well, it's in good shape. We had a significant deficit that we're just not mentioning at this point. Republicans said the problem is chronic overspending and ask why when the state is expecting a $1.4 billion more in revenue than the state had to spend in the last budget, do lawmakers need to raise taxes? Well, the Democrats' gross receipts tax proposal would replace the existing corporate income tax, which produces about $1 billion in revenue a year. The new tax would take effect the 1st of January 2018, and businesses with sales under $5 million threshold would pay a flat tax of $250 annual filing fee. Businesses with less than 150000 in sales uh, would pay nothing, according to lawmakers. Well, they also said that they would bring the state school fund up to as much as $8.8 billion. That's up from the proposed $7.7 billion. And that would allow schools to add two weeks to the school year and reduce class size in elementary grades. Lawmakers would also add uh, $250 million to the higher education budget, which could pave the way for some tuition reductions. We hear a lot from people wanting uh, new investments, particularly in education, Kotek said. I hate it when you use the word wanting as if it was, anyway, I won't go into that. Well, the new tax um, would be um, uh, paired with $400 million in cost containment n- maneuvers, $250 million in outright budget cuts for the next biennium, Kotek went on to say. The state, for example, can save an estimated $100 million on the cost of public employees' retirement system and $20 million by putting off construction of a new prison for seven years. Representative Mike McLean, out of uh, Powell Butte, a Republican, called the proposal a wolf in sheep's clothing. And by the way, there's now a a campaign that you may be hearing on radio and uh, who knows when something will drop in your mailbox, calling this a sales tax and just sort of a follow-up of the failed measure that was on our ballot last time around. Well, uh, Mr. McLean said that it's a massive multi-billion dollar tax on Oregon sales akin to Measure 97 that was rejected by voters less than six months ago, he said in a prepared statement. It's an admission of the fact that Democrats can't balance the budget despite record revenues. And once again, Democrats claim it's for the kids, even as they continue to to drag their feet on what would truly secure lower class sizes and more school days addressing, you heard it, PERS, health benefits and other cost drivers. Representative uh, Phil Barnard, a Democrat out of Eugene, took umbrage at the idea that what um, uh, what he uh, helped Kotech propose amounted to a sales tax or to Measure 97. By comparison, the proposed tax changes a much broader base of business, a much lower rate, he says. It allows businesses with two or more related entities to exclude intercompany transactions so the tax doesn't accumulate or pyramid. Businesses can be expected to pass some of the costs on to consumers. Research predicts about 42 percent of the cost. So the lawmakers are proposing certain provisions to protect low-income and middle-income Oregonians, including possibly reducing individual income tax rates, increasing the standard deduction, increasing the personal exemption credit, and expanding the earned income tax credit. Well, earlier, the Tax Reform Committee was considering a tax 
on business sales of over $1 million, which would have uh, affect about 13,000 additional businesses, but at a rate that would be as low as 0.25 percentage points. The back and forth continues. The campaign essentially to defeat it, to support it has begun. I would encourage you to listen carefully because there's a lot of information that will have an impact on you and uh, businesses in the um, in the state. Uh, so these are important days of the Oregon legislature as we think through what's in our best interest. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. The final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a U.S. Navy SEAL was killed on Thursday fighting terror group Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda's third largest affiliate in Somalia. It appeared to be the first combat death of a U.S. service member in Somalia since 1993. U.S. Africa Command spokesman Patrick Barnes has said two other SEALs and an interpreter were wounded in the gunfire in Somalia. Uh, the Pentagon would not disclose the extent of the injuries due to privacy concerns. But U.S. forces were conducting an uh, advice and, and assist mission alongside members of the Somali National Army near Bari, about 40 miles west of Mogadishu, according to a statement from U.S. Africa Command. The mission involved the use of U.S. helicopters and Navy SEAL assault force uh, partnered with Somalia. Well, the SEALs were attacked early uh, in the mission, not long after landing, and the Pentagon was still assessing if the mission targeting a group of people associated with attacks on Somali's capital was a success. And despite a recent focus on the country by the Trump administration, the authority for the mission uh, was given under orders issued by the Obama administration. Well, Al-Shabaab presents a threat to Americans and American interests, the U.S. Africa Command statement said. Somalia's uh, new Somali-American president, Mohammed Mohammed uh, last month declared a new offensive against Al-Shabaab, which is based in Somalia, but has claimed responsibility for major attacks elsewhere in East Africa as well. Again, a U.S. Navy SEAL uh, killed in Somalia. Well, the subtle, insidious legal battle on Christianity in public schools continues. Many of in uh, academia are hostile toward free speech and the Second Amendment in general, but as it relates to religious expression more specifically. Georgia Gwinnett College, for example, has forbidden unpopular speech from its campus unless you're physically located in one of their free speech zones. But as one young preacher found out, speech is censored even within those zones, too, because the school's policy on voicing positive words about Christianity is apparently shut up. Yet even after following the proper procedures, reversing, uh, rather reserving the space in a free speech zone, uh, these, the preacher, whose name is uh, a Slavic name I'm not going to mispronounce, was again told to desist, this time because his speech had apparently generated complaints and constituted disorderly conduct. Speaking. Consequently, ADF sued the school on behalf of the uh, preacher with legal counsel Travis Barnum, uh, remarkably, remarking rather that uh, while touting commitments to diversity and open communications, Georgia Gwinnett College confines the speech of students to two ridiculously small speech zones and then censors the speech that occurs in those very areas. Well, the First Amendment guarantees every student's freedom of speech and religion, he stated in a December press release, every public school and especially a state college that's supposed to be the marketplace of ideas has a duty to protect and promote those freedoms. Now, though, ADF has uh, informed campus reform that the school has filed a motion to dismiss the case, arguing that the plaintiff's open air speaking rose to the level of fighting words, as evidenced in a copy of the motion obtained by campus reform. Well, plaintiff exclaimed, 
a divisive message directly to a group of many individuals while standing on top of a stool and in doing so actually caused a disturbance. The motion contends, adding that the plaintiff used contentious religious language that, when directed to a crowd, has a tendency to incite hostility. Well, the phrase uh, has a tendency to incite hostility indicates that this happens often. Can Georgia Gwinnett College cite numerous examples of such hostility? And can they present such examples that aren't simply religious discrimination by mob veto? Well, it's not likely. The Supreme Court has affirmed the right of uh, even Westboro Baptist Church to speak freely, even though even most Christians would oppose what Westboro Baptist Church has to say. Well, this particular preacher, his speech would have to be pretty repulsive to extend beyond what the uh, troglodytes at Westboro do on a regular basis. Well, it's well past time that American colleges remember they're located within the world's only real free speech zone, the United States. And young adults should be taught that life within society means you need to cope with people who disagree with you and that you have no right to silence them, to silence anyone. Unfortunately, that's not the message we're getting on college campuses all across the country. Well, so far, the fight to save the Middle East's persecuted Christians has been a slow motion battle of life and death. For years, congressional efforts to help persecuted Christians have been stymied by bureaucratic snafus, administrations that appear to have uh, other priorities. But it looks like 2017 could finally be the year that brings relief to a Middle Eastern Christian community. In December, Congress passed the Frank R. Wolf International Religious Freedom Act, which was signed into law by then-President Obama. The legislation empowers the State Department to designate ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Boko Haram as entities of particular concern as violators of human rights and religious liberty. It also institutes a designated persons list that authorizes the commander in uh, the commander-in-chief to issue sanctions against anyone persecuting people based on their faith. Russell Moore, who's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, hailed the bill as a vital step toward protecting millions of the world's most vulnerable, oppressed people. Tragically, passage of the International Religious Freedom Act came to the came rather the same week an ISIS operative detonated a suicide bomb at a church, a Coptic Christian cathedral in Cairo, Egypt. More help for Christians in uh, peril may be on the way. In January, GOP Representative Chris Smith and Democratic Representative uh, Anna Eshoo reintroduced the Iraq and Syria Genocide Emergency Relief and Accountability Act. It calls for supporting non-government organizations that render aid to genocide for survivors and creates a priority in the refugee program for persecuted religious minorities. In addition to Smith and Eshoo, Defenders of persecuted Christians in the Middle East include GOP representatives Jeff Fortenberry, Trent Franks, and GOP senators Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, and Ted Cruz. The Open Doors Advocacy Group identified the 50 most dangerous countries for Christians. For 35 of them, the number one cause is Islamic extremism. Representative Fortenberry remarked, Our goal should be to rescue, return, and restore beleaguered populations of Christian, Yazidis, and others who have as much uh, right to, as anyone rather, anyone else, to their ancient homeland. George Marland, a Newsmax contributor who also serves as president of Aid to the Church in Need, says we ought to be beating the pots and pans across America to defend the Middle East. One final note. According to CNS News, during Barack Obama's uh, last year in office, the administration admitted 12,587 refugees from the Syrian civil war. Of those 12,486 were Muslim. Only 68 of them were Christian, 0.005%. Another 24 were Yazidi. Now, suggesting that Christians who are persecuted and Yazidis who are persecuted 
um, are underrepresented does not mean that fewer Muslims should be admitted, but that Christians who are imperiled should be admitted as well. But given that one in 10 Syrians is Christian and are persecuted, the obvious question is, why are so few Christians receiving refugee status in America? Well, here might be an explanation. It turns out the U.N. conducts its refugee screening process at refugee camps, which are considered too dangerous for Christians and other minorities. Christians avoid the camps and instead they rely on relatives, charities and churches to subsist. But in doing so, they may be missing out on the chance to resettle in the United States. Now, President Trump has expressed misgivings about unbridled Muslim immigration from war-torn lands. However, the activists are hoping substantially more Christians will be granted refugee status in 2017. And perhaps the way those identified uh, who are uh, worthy of, who are eligible for uh, immigration as refugees will include those who do not uh, come to the uh, uh, refugee clamps where the majority of them are Muslims and where Christians and other religious minorities do not feel safe. So that at least explains in part uh, why the numbers uh, are so incredibly low. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Have a good night. That's not right. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.